progressively becomes more and more secular, as the fringes of our society gets pushed back, as people struggle with understanding how do, what do we do with this Jesus? Um, our society and culture often deals with that during holiday seasons, which have a distinct Christian characteristic to it. Even though our society largely despises Christianity, uh, largely likes to have Christianity around, uh, so long as it doesn't interfere with you know, everyday life. We don't mind the traditions. We don't mind the singing. Uh, we don't mind some of the old um, kind of touch with a, an older world, a world that, that isn't like ours anymore through tradition and, and through hearing some of these songs even sung today. Our culture will often appreciate these things. Tomorrow, I will imagine on TV, you'll hear in the background music, not only secular Christian Christmas songs, but also those of a very distinct Christian nature, right? Like the hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. A song you'll often hear played on the radio as you're shopping at the grocery store or at the mall. You'll hear in the background this music. About hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings. Risen with healing in His wings. Mild He lays His glory by. Born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. In that song we learn of the purpose and the reason Christ came. We see inherent in the words that Christ came for a purpose, for a reason. There are many reasons. Maybe today you're thinking of why Jesus came. Uh, perhaps it's Jesus came to heal the sick. Uh, he came to heal the blind and to raise the dead. Uh, Jesus came to uh, make clear about a few things in matters of religion. He wanted to get the religious leaders straight. They were confused about who the Messiah was to be. Perhaps you think this morning that Jesus came to, you know, be a model, a good person, to model for everyone what a good life looks like, how to obey God and, and follow good morals and, and, you know, just be a good person. That's why Jesus came, to be an example. Perhaps Jesus came for other reasons, as you think this morning. Uh, Jesus came to, as we'll see next week, uh, defeat Satan. Uh, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. This morning, we want to think particularly about why Jesus came in terms of our unrighteousness, in terms of our sinfulness, in terms of our relationship with God. Why did the eternal God need to draw near to sinful man? What, what is going on? Well, this morning, to help us answer those questions, I wanted to turn to 1 Timothy. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, this is not normal behavior. Uh, we don't often just parachute into a particular passage and read it. Um, we, we often go verse by verse through books of the Bible. Um, last Lord's Day, we finished up 1 Peter. And in two weeks, on the first Sunday of the new year, uh, we will begin 2 Peter and spend a few weeks there thinking through that glorious letter. But today, we want to think, and next week, want to think particularly about the coming of Christ, the, the advent of Christ, the first coming of Christ. 
Now, before I read, I want to kind of set the stage, if you will, since we're kind of you know, dropping into this book. We have really no idea what's going on. And, and, and since context is so important to understanding the meaning of passages, I thought it'd be helpful just to, to clarify why uh, this book was written. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter. It's a personal letter. It's a personal note written not to a church but to an individual. It was written to a man by the name of Timothy. Uh, Timothy was uh, Paul's understudy, his apprentice in the ministry. It was one whom Paul had spent countless hours and years discipling, helping him and teaching him how to be a pastor. Uh, and then uh, Paul left him in Ephesus, a, a community of a really thriving church, a, a very strong church, a church that's mentioned uh, not only in the Acts of the apostles, but also in various letters throughout the New Testament, and of course is mentioned by the Lord in Revelation when he critiques their lack of love, their loss of love. Uh, John himself, the apostle John, uh, was an elder there in Ephesus, a pastor in Ephesus at the church, as was this young Timothy. Uh, Timothy was put up as the main preaching pastor there. He was in his uh, maybe early 30s to late 20s. He was a young guy, uh, not much like myself, pastoring an older congregation, established congregation, a congregation that had been around for maybe about 20 years, a congregation, though, that was riddled with a lot of issues, particularly false teaching. You'll remember in, in Acts, it was, it was in Ephesus that Paul faced uh, some of the most uh, kind of treacherous land. It was there in Ephesus that that Paul faced that rotten little uh, silversmith that tried to run him out of town, and, and, and the whole riot happened, and Paul had to be uh, snuck out of town lest they rip him apart. Uh, it was in Ephesus that we know that Paul was to uh, do much of his ministry. Um, he often would return to Ephesus. Uh, we know that Ephesus was a church that was financially prosperous and was able to fund much of the missionary work going on around the world. But in Ephesus, there was an issue an issue crept up early on in the life of the church. And so as young Timothy is wrestling with how to pastor this congregation, Paul writes him a letter to encourage him in the work and to remind him of a few things about what a church is and what the gospel is. In verses 3 through 7, we see really at the heart of the problem there in Ephesus, which will help us understand you know, why um, and what Paul means and what he writes to us as we'll consider in a moment. But look here in verse 3 uh, for a moment. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to eat, teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding e either what they say or what the things about which they make confident assertions. And so at the center of the controversy was the law, and particularly the application of the law in the Christian life. Were Christians saved by works of the law, by obeying the law, by following certain rituals and regulations, or are Christians saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Friends, that is what was going on in the church. And so Paul writes to Timothy and says, hey, let me get some things straight. 
Uh, Let me clarify a few things about the gospel and about gospel ministry. Let me clarify some things going on in your life. How are we to understand the works of righteousness or the works of the law in the life of the Christian? And so Paul writes him this. And so today we're going to consider verses 12 through 17. It's really a a very well-known passage. I'm sure familiar to many of you this morning. Look with me in verse 12 as I read. This is Paul writing, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason. That in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. As an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. God's word tells us so plainly and so clearly that Christ Jesus came into the world for this primary and pinnacle purpose to save sinners. And if this is true, then no one can be saved apart from faith in Jesus. If the eternal God came into the world to save sinners with that particular purpose, with that aim and objective in mind, then no other way can save you. Buddha cannot save you. Hindu cannot save you. Allah cannot save you. Good works cannot save you. Being a good person cannot save you. Your Christian mom and dad cannot save you. Your Christian grandma and grandpa can't save you. No one can save you but Jesus. And so the purpose of our time this morning is this. To encourage you this season... To remind God's people the purpose of Jesus' coming. To make clear in our minds why Jesus came. To remind ourselves of who we are. We need a Savior. And to remind ourselves of who God is. Holy and righteous. And so as you look at the text this morning... The primary force, really, of Paul's argument is is laid out and unfolds in three ways. First, first Paul says, if you understand who I am, if you understand my background, my street cred, if you understand who I am, then you will conclude that salvation must be by grace and not by works. Secondly, if you understand the purpose of Jesus' coming, well, then you will conclude that salvation must be by grace. And not by works. And finally his argument really comes to a conclusion when he says 
if you understand who God is, if you understand who God is, well then you must conclude that salvation must be by grace. So this morning we want to look at those three questions. Who was the Apostle Paul? Who was the Apostle Paul? Why did Jesus come? And then finally, who is God? Who was the Apostle Paul? He, he tells us a bit of a background, doesn't he, here in verses 12 through verses 14? He gives us a little biographical on himself. He wants to tell us who he is. Now, it's funny, if you think about this for just a moment, who he's writing to. He's writing to Timothy. Timothy. The man whom he spent so many years with. The man whom he lived life with. His apprentice. Well, if you've ever had an apprentice or you were ever an apprentice, if you've ever studied under someone or even at work as you think about your boss or a manager or someone who is a superior to you, oftentimes just because you are with them often and you're around them and they're sharing life stories and they're communicating to you and talking to you, you get to learn a lot about them, don't you? You get to know a lot about the people that you work with. Uh, oftentimes, their, their, their problems, right? They, they always talk about their problems. Uh, always talking about their struggles. Always talking about what's going on in their life. And so you get to know them. There's an intimate level in which you get to know them. Well, think about Peter, or excuse me, uh, Paul and uh, Timothy here. Surely, Timothy would have known all of these things. Surely, Timothy would have known Paul's reputation. Paul's reputation was worldwide. Anywhere there was a Jewish community, people knew the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was not just some nobody that, that Jesus saved. He was a somebody. He really was. He was a, a rising leader in Judaism. He, he was a rising leader. Many, many scholars say that he could even have been the next high priest. He, was, he was kind of a, had the right credentials. Paul tells us in, in Philippians that he was the Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. Like He was everyone's best friend. He was the one that got invited to everyone's parties. He was the ones that the Pharisees were always calling up. If Paul came to my party, man, everybody's coming to my party. Paul was a very important person in the life of Israel. But there's really one problem with Paul, wasn't there? Paul was a sinner. Paul begins here by saying, uh, by giving thanks to God. Notice in verse 12, he says, I thank him who has given me strength. Uh, Paul begins by thanking God uh, for the blessings that God had given him. Particularly thankful that the Lord Jesus had created in him faithfulness. And we don't have much time to spend on this, not really the point, but, but you'll see that confusing thing. Because he judged me faithful, uh, it sounds quite confusing, as if Paul was faithful and therefore Jesus called him. That's not what he means by that. that Although it seems to be what he means, that's not what he means. I think as we understand the totality of Scripture, that, that he made me faithful, he judged me faithful, he declared me faithful, declared me righteous, and appointed me to gospel ministry. Now why is Paul so thankful? Now why is it that Paul is so grateful for Jesus? Why is it that he begins with this thanksgiving to Jesus? It is because Paul knew who he was. See, Paul was not only blessed by God, but in verse 13, Paul tells us that he was a wicked sinner, undeserving of this blessing. Paul was thankful because God had blessed him undeservingly. In verse 13, Paul describes who he was before God saved him. 
Notice what he says. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Or as the CSB translates that last insolent opponent as a violent man. Paul was a blasphemer. He blasphemed God. I want you to think for a moment what that means. If Paul was a blasphemer of God, and he was faithfully following God as a Jewish leader, how is it that he's a blasphemer? How is it that he was a blasphemer of God? If he was doing what he thought was God's work of destroying Christians? Well, it's because he wasn't worshiping the full God. He was not worshiping Jesus Christ as God. He was not giving worship to Jesus. And so in that way, he was a blasphemer. But more than that, he was a persecutor and a violent man. He was one who acted, he says, ignorantly in unbelief. Later in verse 15 and 16, he describes himself as the foremost sinner, the chief sinner. I was the foremost. I was the greatest sinner there was. I I was the worst of sinners. Why was Paul such a bad sinner? What made Paul particularly worse than the rest? Because Paul persecuted the church. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 3, Luke tells us that, that Paul was ravaging the church and entered house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. You know the story well, right? The Apostle Paul, whose former name was Saul, as Saul was leading there in Jerusalem, one of his chief jobs was to eradicate Christianity from the face of the earth. He was, if you will, Sodom Hussein. He was a terrorist who sought to do nothing but to remove Christianity, to eradicate it from the face of the earth. Paul's mission in life was to lock up every Christian. His his heart in ministry, and he thought he was pleasing God, was to remove every name and everyone who claimed the name of Jesus. He was a persecutor of the church, a violent man. But we read in Acts chapter 9 that on his way to Damascus to lock up more Christians, the eternal God of the universe confronted Paul in his sin. Had revealed himself to you and to him. And in that miraculous conversion, instantaneously Paul was on a mission to destroy God and Jesus spoke to him from heaven and says Paul Paul why are you persecuting me why are you killing me and I want you to hear something Paul doesn't say anything besides I'll do whatever you want When you meet the eternal God of the universe, He transforms you. He changes you. You don't change yourself. 
Paul was a persecutor of the church, a violent man. We even read in Acts that he stood over the stoning of one of the first deacons of the church, Stephen. As Stephen was drug out into the city streets and stoned to death, Paul was the one who held everyone's coats. He gave the orders for the execution of one of the very first disciples of Jesus Christ. And that is the man who is writing this word to you today about the grace of God. You see, Paul was honest about his sin. Paul never sugarcoated his, his sinful life. He, he never tried to justify his sin. He never tried to explain it away. He never said, you know, it wasn't a big deal, you know, me killing those people and locking up those Christians. It was never a, you know, we all make mistakes. See, the Bible tells us there's really three paths to dealing with our sinful state. We might first deny God and any sense of morality. That's what Romans 1 tells us. We deny God and we deny that there is any moral standard by which this world is to operate. Friends, that is the prevailing winds of our culture. There's no morality. You do whatever, you, whatever pleases you. It doesn't matter how you live or what you do. As long as it makes you happy, it's okay. But friends, that's not true. God has not created you to live however you want to live, but created you to follow Him and and to live by a certain standard. Another way that we might deal with our sinfulness is by believing there is a God. Oh yeah, God's real. There's a God out there somewhere. Uh, God, He's around. I call Him every once in a while when I need a few bucks to to get a meal or or a few dollars to put in in the gas tank. But generally, God doesn't really care how I live. There's no responsibility for my actions. I can just live however I want. God's loving. He, he, he loves me. The, the Bible tells me so, that God loves me. I learned about it in, in, in vacation Bible school, about how God is love. And so He must love me so much that He doesn't really care how I live. Well, perhaps a third way is by believing there is a God. And not just believing a God of your imagination, you know, the God that you've invented in your mind, but actually opening the Bible and turning to a passage like Isaiah 9, Isaiah 6. You see a God who's holy, a God who is wrath, a God who is just, a God who is right to punish sinfulness. Or, or perhaps you read all the way at the beginning, a God who, who said to Adam and to Eve, if you eat of the tree, you will die. Well, that's the God of the Bible. A God who says, if you sin against me, if you willfully rebel against my good word, you will die. Friends, that is the God of the Old Testament and that is the God of the New Testament. That is the God of the universe. And that is why Paul is unashamed to call himself a sinner because not only is God just, but as you see in verse 13, God is merciful. 
How is it that Paul could be so honest about his sin? How is it that we today in our worship service could could devote time to confessing sin without worrying that there's going to be lightning bolts striking us dead? Or we're going to like croak over right here in our seats as we stand? How is it that this is possible? Because Paul was a recipient of God's mercy, we are told. Though I formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy. I received mercy, he says. Notice how Paul describes this mercy in verse 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. It overflowed with, with extraordinarily abundance. The grace of God, it, it overpoured, it was filling up, it was flowing into the streets, it was pouring out. Grace, faith, and love. Each of these are a measure of God's mercy. Each of them are a gift of God. Even the faith you believe, Paul says, was a gift from God. Paul is reminding Timothy that he did not earn God's mercy. Paul's reminding Timothy, listen, I did not earn God's mercy. I was a wicked sinner. God did not choose me because I was going to do something great for Him. God did not call me out of darkness and light because I'm something special. No, I was a violent, wicked blasphemer. I hated God. I hated Jesus. But God had mercy upon me. God was not merciful with Paul because he was obeying God. See, mercy is a gift to be received by faith, not a wage to be earned through works. God would not call it mercy if we had earned it. Paul would not have said God had mercy on him if he had earned it, if he had deserved it. There was something in him inherently about him that was good. No, there was nothing in him that was good. The Bible is so clear. The wages we earn for our work is death. But we receive mercy because God is willing to be merciful. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, God says. God's mercy flows from his Purposes of grace. The the God of the Bible is a God who will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And he will condemn whom he will condemn. R.C. Sproul in The Holiness of God reminds us of this truth. He writes this. The minute you think God owes you mercy, a bell should go off in your brain that warns you and tells you that you are no longer thinking about mercy. For by definition, mercy is voluntary. God is never obligated to be merciful to a rebellious creature. He doesn't owe you mercy. He will have mercy on whom you, whom he will have mercy. The gospel makes this so clear that God is merciful. But he is merciful not because we deserve it. Because it is a measure of his grace. And Christian friends and family, look, this holiday season is such a tempting time for us as Christians. I know it is. It's tempting in this way. You and your life have sought to follow Christ. You wouldn't be here, I hope, on the Lord's Day as a Christian if you were not trying to follow Jesus. 
But it's so tempting because you gather around your friends, your family who are non-Christians or claim to follow Christ and who are not faithfully doing so. And it is a season of self-righteousness. It's a season in which we prop ourselves up and we think, wow, I'm glad I'm following Jesus and my wretched family need to get their act together. Oh, but I don't think the Apostle Paul would would say such a thing. I don't think the publican would say such a thing. You remember the publican that Jesus told us about? Who went into the temple and just cried out, God, have mercy on me. He knew that he was lost, lest God have mercy on him. He knew that he was condemned to death. He knew who God was. He knew God was holy and that he was condemned. And that if God did not act, he knew he was dead. He was smoked. There was no question. And friends, that is you and I. Apart from God's mercy, we are helpless. And so this season, do not sprout yourself up or prop yourself up in self-righteousness, thinking, wow, look at me. I'm following Jesus. No, be humbled as you see your family living reckless lives. Pray for them all the more, for God's mercy to be revealed to them. Who was the Apostle Paul? In short, he was a sinner in need of a Savior. He was a sinner in need of a Savior who was a recipient of God's abundant mercy. Paul is reminding Timothy that salvation must be by grace. It must be by the work of God and not by our own works. Because there's no way I could save myself, he says. And then secondly, we see in verses 15 and 16, the reason Jesus came. Why did Christ Jesus come? Why is it that he came? Look with me in verses 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now I just want to make a very brief note here that we're not going to spend time on. I want you to notice here, we could parse this whole thing out, verse 15. Christ Jesus came. Christ Jesus came. There is a measure in those words of hope. If Jesus is the eternal Son of God, then the eternal came to the temporal. The eternal was clothed in human flesh. The eternal God of the universe clothed Himself in human flesh and came into a sewage pit. He came into the world, to our broken, messed up, jacked up world. This is where He came. The perfectly holy God came and weighed around in our cesspool that we created. He didn't cast it away. He didn't destroy it by fire. Oh, how He wanted to. But He came. He came. He did not leave us. In the beginning, John tells us, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. The Word is Christ and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Eternal clothed Himself 
in broken humanity to save. To save. Why did Jesus come? Well, we see first, Jesus came to save us. To save us. Jesus Christ came into the world to save. It begs the question, does it not? To save us from what? What did he come to save us from? (laughs) From ourselves? From evil? From the bad neighbors who can't get their act together? Who did he save us from? Friends, the Bible tells us he came to save us from his father. Jesus came to save us from his father's wrath. His holy and righteous Father who promised to condemn and to kill anyone who rebelled against His holy law. God the Father made very clear, did He not, in the Bible? That because of our sinful rebellion, God has condemned us to face death and judgment. Hebrews 9.27 tells us the man is, that man is destined to die once. And after that, face judgment. No, there's no pearly gates for humanity. There's no eternal bliss for humanity apart from the saving work of Christ. What do we get for our rebellion against God? What is it that we earn? What is it that we get to unwrap underneath the Christmas tree? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. We earn death for our rebellion. You ever think about when you sin against God, when you say, you know, God, I, I know that what I'm doing is wrong. I know this is not right. I, I sense it in my soul. I, I, I'm convicted. This, but you know what? I really love it. I enjoy it. It's so good. Do you know those acts condemn you eternally? That we receive death for our hard work of rebelling against God. And do, wow, do we work hard. The Bible is so clear. God is holy. And we deserve His just punishment for our sins. God would really be a terrible God. Unworthy to be worshipped. If He just was capricious about sin. He's like, ah, I don't care about your sin. I don't care what you do. It's okay. Look, if you think about God like you think about your grandparents, you know, they just let everything go and everything's okay. Man, you've got the wrong idea about God. God is not cool with you and your sin. He's not okay with you rebelling against Him. He created you to serve and to worship Him, not for you to spend your life serving and worshiping yourself. And Honestly, brothers and sisters, wouldn't we be a little concerned Wouldn't we be a little concerned if we started reading Bible verses about how God was like, you know, sin's okay. Everybody has to have fun every once in a while. You know, you got to live it up while you're young, you know, because when you get old, it's just boring. No, no. The Bible tells us that our God is one who is so pure. Your eyes, Habakkuk says, are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Our rebellion against God has separated us 
and has put me and you at enmity with God. What is Jesus coming to save us from? What is he rescuing us from? From the flood of God's eternal wrath. The wrath of God that that our sins justly deserve. We should be afraid. But thanks be to God. That God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through Him. Jesus' coming was a sign that God was not yet done with humanity. It was a reminder that God came to save us from our sin. Jesus Christ came into the world, Paul says, to save who? Sinners. Sinners, not saints. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, not saints. You'll remember what the angel said to Joseph. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from what? Their sins. As Jesus himself taught, the Son of Man came to seek and to save. Not the found, not the right, not the well, but the lost. And so this morning, if you understand yourself to be saved, if you understand yourself to be found... Understand that you were once lost, but then you were found. We all remember those fateful words of our Savior. When before Pilate, Pilate said to Jesus, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, to rescue sinners, not saints. And so this morning, if you do not understand yourself to be a Christian, if you, if you don't understand what that even means, maybe you think you understand what that means, maybe you've thought about it before, but I want you to understand something, that if you think you're okay with God, you're not. This room has only really two groups of people in it, sinners. That are divided. One group divided in two. All of us are sinners in this room. No one is not a sinner in this room tonight. Jesus isn't here. If he was here then we could say that. But he's not here. Everyone in this room is a sinner. The Bible makes that so clear. But there are two groups of sinners. Subsets of sinners. Repentant sinners and unrepentant sinners. Repentant sinners are those who say. You know I understand those things. But I'm just going to kind of live life my own way. But repentant sinners are those who say no to sin. Who turn from their sin and trust in Christ. This is what Paul says, isn't it, in verse 16. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. As an example to who? To those who were to believe in him. Believe in Christ for eternal life. The only way to be saved is by trusting in Christ. By believing in Him. By turning from our life of sin. Friend, will you turn from your life of sin today? Will you abandon your destructive way and go God's new way? The way that leads to life everlasting? 
And if you want to know more about that, I just encourage you to talk to me on the way out. Ask me more about what it means to follow Jesus. And we have many in here that will help you follow Christ. To believe that one can be acceptable to God by mere obedience. By mere obedience of the law, by mere obedience of God's righteous rules, is to undermine the reason for Christ's coming. The fact that Christ Jesus came proves our desperate need for Him and reveals that we are eternally damned apart from God's saving work in Christ. I want to conclude briefly with number three, who is God? This will be a very brief point. Paul ends in verse 17 with worship. He begins with thanksgiving in verse 12 and ends with exaltation with worship in verse 17. As he writes, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. The right response to the saving work of Christ is worship. This is why we gather today. We didn't come to worship ourselves or, or to sing songs we like or you know, to, to dance around and have a good time, you know, feel good about ourselves. We came to worship God for what He has done, to praise Him and to lift up our voices in song, to sing joy to the world. Because we believe it's true. Because we believe Christ has come. So who is God? Look how He says that God is a King. God is the Sovereign One, the Almighty One. He is the One who rules the universe. God is eternal, everlasting, who was and who is and whoever will be. He has no beginning and He has no end. God is immortal. He, never, he is the never-ending God. He is the God who will never die. God is invisible, the One whom no human eye has ever seen or can see. God is the only God, the only God. He is exclusive. No one is like Him, nor will there ever be one like Him, nor will He ever share His throne with another. Not our tiny little idols in our hearts and lives or the big lusts of our flesh. God alone rules, and God alone is worthy of glory and honor because God alone can save. Paul concludes with these grand statements about God to in encourage and to remind and to give assurance that God is able. If this is who God is, then He can save a sinner like me. That if God is this big, so the problem is, is that we have a little God Many years ago, C.S. Lewis, Lewis was traveling. And uh, while he was traveling, he uh, notoriously would visit other churches. And he slipped into this small village church, country church in England. And the minister was on holiday that day. He was on vacation, for you Americans, right? Uh, he was on vacation. And, and the assistant minister was there praying. And his, he led in the prayer of petition before the congregation, he began to pray, uh, you know, that the, that the pastor would have a good holiday, that, that he would be safe. That, and he began to pray for one or two of the, the sick members, and then he said amen and, and sat down. C.S. Lewis was grieved by this. And he concluded, 
They are a village people with a village God. A village people with a village God. They prayed as if God was not Almighty. For if God was Almighty, if God was all-powerful, if God was able to save, then why weren't they calling down heaven to earth? Friends, I wonder, do you have a village gone? As you you think about your lost friends and family, what kind of God is it that you pray to? A village God? One who can do little? Or the eternal God? The one who is able to save even the worst of sinners? Let's pray. Eternal Father in heaven, we give praise to you. We glorify you today. We pray that you would save us. Save us now. Save sinners now. Call them unto righteousness. Call them unto new life. We pray, Lord, that you would convert those around us. That we would be refreshed and reminded that salvation is by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. Not by works. Let us cast away every desire we have. And may we worship you. The King of the ages. Immortal. Invisible. The only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.